Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some solutions to our social media problems. Fake news, propaganda, hate in all forms, spreading like wildfire through society. Before we get started, though, I just want to say we're taking it as granted today that social media is designed to extract as much money out of its users as possible, even if it means destroying your sleep schedule, your personal relationships, and democracy all to those ends. Uh, And and so today we're not going to get deep into the problems and look more at solutions, But as we get started, I want to refresh in your mind something I I said real recently on the show. We were talking about political ages that span decades, not not a democratic age or a republican age, not a democratic presidential period or a republican presidential period. But I was talking about the first Gilded Age period, which was born persisted and then died over the course of several decades. Then we had the FDR New Deal period, which of course was born during the FDR era and lasted into the 70s. Right now, I argue that we are living at the end of the Reagan libertarian political era. And as I said, this spans political parties. This is something that maybe started with Reagan, but was absolutely perpetuated by George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama, in many ways, two different degrees. And this age of neoliberalism brings with it an era of deregulation and specifically a lack of antitrust regulation. So that's what I want you to be thinking about as we begin the show, and we start to hear about how we got to where we are. Now onto the show, clips today come from The Takeaway, Backtalk, On the Media, and Your Undivided Attention. And just a quick note on that one, longtime listeners may recall the Time Well Spent movement. It was an advocacy movement trying to change the culture of Silicon Valley away from calculating revenue based on users' time on site or time on device or time using a particular app that incentivized them to use all of the psychological tricks from casinos and beyond to keep us totally addicted to our devices. Or maybe you've heard of the organization that came from the Time Well Spent movement. It was sort of born out of that. It's called the Center for Humane Technology, which was also previously featured on the show. So I want you to know that the podcast, Your Undivided Attention, is the podcast produced by that organization and hosted by its founder, Tristan Harris. So if you want more information on how to fix big tech and you only have time for one more podcast, I suggest you make it that one. This was 2011. Um, sorry, I'm kind of nervous. We have the president of the United States here. My name is Barack Obama, and I'm the guy who got Mark to wear a jacket and tie. Thank you. (laughs) And in fact, if you'd like, Mark, we can take our jackets off. No, that's good. That's better, isn't it? Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg with President Barack Obama at Facebook headquarters in Palo Alto, California. And this was Wednesday. It should be clear why we have serious concerns about your plan. 
So, Mr. Zuckerberg, yes or no, is it still your policy to ban hate groups? I, my understanding is yes. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman. Mr. Zuckerberg, yes or no, does this meet your community standards? I, I'm not sure I'm in a position right now to... I, I don't think that's a hard question. You plan on doing no fact-checking on political ads? Our, our policy is that we do not fact-check politicians' speech. Would you be willing to act as a content monitor? I'm not sure that it would best serve our community for me to spend that much Reclaiming time. Reclaiming my time. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. My have times changed. That, of course, was Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee this week. The hearing's focus was on Facebook's plan for a cryptocurrency. But let's be honest, Zuckerberg can't go anywhere these days without being asked about transparency and trust. It's clear that since the 2016 election, big tech has fallen out of favor with the Democrats. We have a massive crisis in our democracy with the way these tech companies are being used. You get to be the umpire in the baseball game or you get to have a team. They have an outsized influence on people's perceptions about issues. We need to set very tough, very clear, transparent rules. Start talking about this as a pro-competition issue. It's time to fight back. And while many of us are also frustrated by the power and influence these tech companies have on our lives and our economy, they are an inescapable part of it. Be honest, when was the last time you used Facebook, Google, Amazon? The last time I used Facebook and Google was today. I checked my Facebook feed and updated my profile picture. Today, I was on Facebook posting a picture of my husband. I do use all three platforms and used them yesterday. I used Amazon today. I use Facebook, Amazon, and Google pretty much all the time. Pretty much on a daily basis. Currently looking at posts. Um, I use Facebook daily to catch up on what friends are doing and use Amazon like for Halloween candy. That's what I thought. I'm actually reading these words from a Google Doc right now. These big tech companies are embedded in the social and economic fabric of our country. They've bought up the competition, they control our data, and have few government regulations. But how exactly did we get here? I think it's a great question and a classic American story of premature triumphalism. That's Tim Wu. He's the author of The Curse of Bigness and a professor at Columbia University. You know, about uh, 15 years ago, the Internet was held up as the model of the competitive capitalist market where anyone could, with a shoebox or something, open a company and, uh, or a blog or anything and, and take on the giants. And, you know, nothing mattered anymore. Size, scale, uh, big and small was meaningless. But around the turn of the decade and accelerating uh, through the 2010s, the old economic forces reasserted themselves. Scale did start to matter. Brand mattered. And the accumulation of data in a few places mattered. The problem was that the, the laws and the enforcement of the laws was still predicated on the idea that the internet was a Valhalla of perfect competition, that it was competition is only a click away, that there was no reason to be worried about anything because, well, even if Facebook bought a competitor, Facebook might be gone in a year anyway, so uh, better to, to stay out. And so I think we sort of acquiesced in the monopolization of the tech industries 
based on this rosy premise that somehow they'd overcome the basic rules of economics. Is that the reason then why the normal regulatory bodies did not jump on this sooner to start asking the questions that we're asking now? Uh, yeah, I'd point particularly to a failure of merger control, the, the system for preventing companies from buying their competitors. In this sort of rosier view that everything was fine and this was the perfect industry, everybody somehow became okay with over three or 400 buyouts of companies. There's been a massive wave of, of mergers. I think uh, Standard Oil in the 19th century is, is the relevant comparison. So yeah, I think that everybody sort of stood down for a, a while and hoped that the invisible hand would fix it all. And that's how we got here today. Did they think also that, well, let me say it a different way. Uh -huh. Did they maybe not understand what was happening? I mean, we know the standard oil comparison, or if this were sort of a traditional company or industry, right? If this were a mm -hmm. mining company, if this were a grocery supermarket chain, whatever it is, we, most people understand how those things work. Technology, well, that that's really not for especially people of a certain age, not something they're comfortable with. No, I don't actually think that's true. I mean, I guess I was in government during then, and so it would be not they but me as one of the people. Um, I don't think we didn't understand these companies. I think we were actually more generally living in an era of uh, abandonment of antitrust in particular. Um, you know, you mentioned supermarkets and uh, other industries. We also allowed everybody else to merge, too. I mean, you know, this is a period uh, over which AT&T came back, over which we allowed the airlines to merge down to three airlines. Uh, we allowed insurance to, to consolidate. So actually, tech was part of a much larger uh, permissiveness across the economy and even through administrations that just allowed um, mergers and consolidation of industry with a lot of without a lot of control. So actually, I don't think I don't think it's right that tech got special treatment. Uh, I think everybody was allowed to merge as they liked. This went across, the, this is the Clinton administration, this is the Bush administration, yeah. this is the Obama administration, right? This wasn't just That's one right. party. I think there was a rosy view of tech. I don't think, you know, based on my own experience, that, you know, the stereotype of 80-year-olds and you know, can't understand tech and what's going on here and what's my grandson playing with. You know, I, I don't uh, – you know, that that's actually not a bad description of Congress. But um, I don't think in the administrations that was exactly what it was. They're smart people. There was just an incredible faith that everything would work out by itself, a commitment to sort of a laissez-faire and a tendency towards inaction uh, that was across the economy, frankly – and has led in a lot of directions. You know, a lot of our inequality problems, I think, also stem from that attitude. But I don't think it's limited to tech. I just think tech was a beneficiary of it. When we go back in time, I mean, the idea of breaking up, this, this is, I think, a really important point because it's not as if government hasn't taken on monopolies in the recent past. I was around for the breakup of AT&T. You had the Microsoft antitrust case. So... There was a will to do these things. We know what the process looks like. So you're you're making the argument not that we, as the American regulatory system, can't regulate 
big tech, but just that they chose not to. That's exactly right. The argument you'll hear sometimes that the law is too slow to keep up with tech. It just moves so fast what you can do. I, I think those are very specious arguments and, in fact, they uh, conceal a certain anti-democratic impulse. You know, the fastest moving industries uh, 100 years ago were the oil industry and, and the telephone industry. And, and you know, we uh, broke up those industries, especially oil, back then. Uh, cinema was a new and fast-changing industry that was broken up. In, in, and I'm talking about the early 20th century. So every industry, every generation says, oh, you know, we're new, we're different, um, you can't really uh, keep up with us. The law doesn't. But, you know, the law is ancient. <laughs> it relies on a monopoly of force, and uh, that hasn't become irrelevant. Let's just put it that way. And even within recent memory, as you point out, Microsoft was subjected to a very serious antitrust uh, suit by the government. And uh, once again, everyone said, oh, you know, you, they moved too fast. Software is too virtual. And, uh, well, it just wasn't true. The other argument that gets made is, well, unlike AT&T, for example, breaking up AT&T, if you, quote unquote, break up big tech, you are opening up the market to the Chinese. And the Chinese are going to come in with their technology. They're already prepared to do this, which has, you know, nefarious actors involved, specifically the Chinese government. And that is the reason that maybe, yes, some regulation, but breaking it up would be harmful to American security. Do you buy that argument? Uh, I am very resistant to that form of fear-mongering. I uh, don't think that the national security of the United States depends on Facebook, uh, Google, and Amazon being uh, in their current form. The same arguments were made back in the 70s and 80s with Japan, and the idea was that if you messed with AT&T or IBM, that Japan would come to rule the universe. Well, we uh, did break up AT&T. Uh, we put IBM through the ringer, and actually American got stronger from that process. Its tech industries became uh, more vigorous, more vibrant, and it ultimately left Japan in the dust. So I think America does better when it doesn't choose a couple national champions and say, you know, these companies are special. They're they're immune from, from government, uh, maybe immune from competition. They're our favored little children. That is the way to lose to the Chinese. Let's just put it that way. The more that I sort of dig into this stuff and listen to people like you and others who are thinking 10, 20, 50 years down the road, the more worried I am that we're going to end up in some sort of dystopian future <laughs> where all of our information is controlled maybe by one or two nefarious types of people, leaders, whatever. And um, it looks kind of scary out there. Should I be this scared or should I be more optimistic about what the future could look like? No, I, I think there's reason to be scared. Uh, the history of the 20th century has some harsh lessons about the possibility of behavioral control and um, effective use of propaganda and misuse of, of information both to control a population but also to to uh, manipulate it um, in, in ways that are truly terrifying. Uh, I think that no society should ever be completely calm about the possibility of uh, 
of centralized power with uh, access, especially exclusive access to certain forms of information. So, yeah, we're talking about big stakes here and, you know, can get lost in a conversation about whether, you know, Amazon is treating its vendors right or something, which, you know, it's a smaller thing. But the big stakes and the big questions here are all about the power that comes from control of information. And we've seen terrifying things done with that before. And I hope we can somehow collectively prevent terrifying things being done in the future. It's an existential threat to Facebook for them to be broken up. And so since uh, 2016, 2017, when Facebook started getting rightfully in trouble for uh, their role in the 2016 election and advertising during the 2016 election, uh, they've been facing a lot of heat, especially from Democrats, and they're very afraid of getting broken up. And so they have started cozying up to Republicans so that they can uh, protect themselves if there's ever any kind of move to break them up. And so this is unreal. I can't believe this. Since, since July, Mark Zuckerberg has been hosting Republicans at his home for two to three hour dinners where they've been talking about um, conservatives' issues with Facebook. And let me tell you some of the people that he's had over to his house. He had uh, Lindsey Graham. He had Fox News host Tucker Carlson. He had conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. Um, he's had like huge conservative players over to his house so that he can befriend the Republican Party and uh, sort of slip onto their like libertarian bandwagon of um, – absolutism about free speech and it's it's like a part of his mo because um after like the disaster that happened in the 2016 election um it's like widely known that mark zuckerberg went on what a lot of people called his apology tour um where he seemed like really you know uh contrite and like apologetic about how facebook mishandled um the situation with the russian bots (laughs) and the spread of misinformation then and then also sort of like um a little bit addressing like the real like and like tangible harm and violence um that the misinformation um that people receive through Facebook has like wrought like with especially with um the situation in Myanmar where there were like um the Buddhist extremists which I never thought I would say that phrase um where Buddhist extremists you know um put out a lot of misinformation about um the Muslim minority population there and um where it, it forced like a, a lot of them to flee the country and like have to become refugees and there was like like genocide against that community and then also there was like violence in India, um, due in part to violent or uh, misinformation that was spread on Facebook. So, like, Facebook has, uh, as a platform, um, been a way through which a lot of terrible information has been spread. And, you know, for a while, Mark Zuckerberg was like, yeah, like, like, we kind of didn't understand how powerful we are. And it, it seems though now that he's pivoted. He's like, you know what? Fuck that. Like, I'm no longer <laughs> apologizing. I mean, essentially, right? Like, he's like, I'm no longer apologizing because Facebook is about free speech and we'll do whatever the fuck we want because we're like protecting the first amendment. And like this thing where he's meeting with conservative folks, um, is him like being 
being like, see, I'm hearing from both sides. Yep. And I'm not just some like weirdo, like Silicon Valley, like liberal. I want to hear right. both sides. And, and in the end, it's, it's, I mean, like we talk about this all the time, but in the end, it's really about capitalism. It's really about him making money. Because, um, just recently, I want to say within the past couple of days, um, it's announced that Facebook will have a news tab, um, on their platform. And the news tab is like theoretically supposed to like a little bit declutter our, um, our Facebook news feed so that we can like go to a, a very specific spot for news. But this news tab isn't like some benign thing where they're going to like, you know, give you like, uh, very free and fair information. It's like it, they're going to be partnering with certain news outlets, um, so that like their news will show up on the news feed. And on this news tab, like, uh, some, you know, they're going to be, Facebook is, is theoretically going to be paying news outlets to be using like their content. Um, and one of the people that they're going to partner with as of, as of right now, unless this changes, will, will be Breitbart News, you know, and Facebook is, and Mark Zuckerberg is framing this as a free speech issue, um, and not a disinformation is- issue. And that's why, like, you cannot take what Mark Zuckerberg wants to do with this company, um, and like its mission and its ideas and values, uh, because it's all about making money for Facebook. Um, and it's all about Facebook trying to be a bigger, um, and like more powerful company. It isn't about like loftier notions than that. It isn't about like protecting free speech. Um, and it, I just, I, I'm, it's, it's to the point where anytime Mark Zuckerberg says anything, I'm just like, how is this making him money? That's it. It isn't like about any more than that. Among the misinformation that Facebook is spreading is the idea that Facebook can grant you or deny you free speech, which is not the case. The government is the entity that owes you the right to free speech. Facebook is a free website. Like they do not owe you free speech. And to frame things into this, again, like this like libertarian kind of conservative mindset, free speech absolutism, like anything should be able to be said is that's how you know that there are Republican operatives who work there because it's so smart to like meld those together and so slimy. Yeah. And so Facebook. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think like, you know, Facebook can become a synonym for those uh, other adjectives. And so after he, you know, he had the congressional hearing um, where he essentially was like, yeah, we are not going to uh, fact check things. And specifically, we will not fact check political ads. Um, a bunch, a group of Facebook employees got together and wrote an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg because they're very concerned about this. Because think about people who work for such a big corporation. Like, I think there's like some sheen to it, you know, like I'm working for for Facebook. It feels good to work theoretically. It feels good to work there. And I think that like um uh like listening to his testimony, some employees are like rethinking that like what what kind of company are we working for? Like what are we doing here? What is our work enabling? And I just wanted to read a little part of this letter, this open letter that the employees wrote. Um you know part of it where they're like, this is our company. Like they're taking ownership that they work there and they're actually proud of their work and they don't want to be not proud of their work. Uh, and part of the letter they say, quote, free speech and paid speech are not the same thing. Wow. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> misinformation affects us, affects us all. Our current policies on fact checking people in political office or for those running for office are a threat to what Facebook stands for. We strongly object to this policy as it stands. It does not protect voices, but instead allows politicians to weaponize our platform by targeting people who believe that content posted by political figures is trustworthy. Uh, and like, it's like, why does it take a group of your own employees to point out that this is not good policy? Um, and, you know, I do think back about, cause like, while I was listening to all this, I was wondering, 
Okay, when um when politicians have ads on TV, do those get fact checked? You know, when politicians um, advertise in other places, do those get fact checked? And and actually, in some places, you know, on broadcast television, sometimes they don't get fact checked, or um uh or there's some platforms that just don't even allow political ads because they don't want to go through this. And so I get that. Like I think that maybe like um, Mark Zuckerberg could say like you know when you're watching like you know your nightly news and then there's ads in between, those ads don't get fact checked either. But I think there's a difference between watching nightly news on TV, broadcast TV, and seeing an ad come up uh, versus like having targeted, very specific targeted ads at you. Like say if your profile says that, you know, you're uh, elderly uh, and then it knows that like maybe you um, trust everything you see on, on screen um, and know that like specific ads are targeted at you and you're conservative saying that like uh, these liberal politicians are going to take away your second amendment next week. Uh, I think that like there's a responsibility that Mark Zuckerberg is like shirking off for Facebook and saying we don't need to fact check that. Like it's up to that citizen to Google and figure out if it's true or not but that just like that completely um i think does away with the the responsibility that facebook have like i think he's trying to do two things he's trying to say we're a big powerful company but we're not that big and powerful like you guys can actually like figure this, some of this shit out then why <laughs> you know then then why do this like i think that like it's like this he's trying to do this um thing where you know he's it's like a bait and switch saying like we we just give you this information you can look it up but without without acknowledging how um how powerful facebook is in presenting information and and how many eyeballs looks at information um without delving any further than the information that they see on their platform. Actually, knowing more about Facebook, um, like, I think every day and every month and every week that I'm on it, I, I'm so waiting to deactivate my account. Like, w- like without question. There's just, it's become to the point where, like, the usefulness of Facebook um, is, is like, has been outweighed by, like, the treachery of it and how I just think it's, like, such an evil company and corporation. Because I think that's what, how we have to think about it. I think sometimes we're like, oh, it's just social media. Um, but it's not just social media, especially for this specific company, because it's using us and our information um, and the way we um, consume information uh, as a way to target us for possibly nefarious things um to sway to sway elections um to incite violence and i think that like these are things that in order for facebook to move forward um you know in good faith they need to really address and own up to and and instead of saying like you know uh we're just like like a company that believes in free speech they need to say not only did, did this happen on our platform and not only are we taking proactive measures to like make sure this doesn't happen again um but we like patently are against things like this happening on our platform. Not only is that not happening, um, he's doubling down and saying, no, we're going to make it even more quote-unquote free speechy um, with that regulation. And that's kind of really scary because of how powerful a platform Facebook is. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. 
Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color you can do at home, and look as if you came from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and Best of the Left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's code LEFT at madison-reed.com. Where in the world is Mark Zuckerberg? Well, lately, everywhere. This week, he was seen facing off against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in congressional hearings. I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the, the bounds here. What's fair game? I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. Last week, he was at Georgetown University giving a speech on free expression. Now, I'm committed to the values that we're discussing today, but... Well, we won't always get it right. He's also come up in coverage of the Democratic presidential campaign. Pete Buttigieg's campaign confirmed that Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan recommended staffers to the campaign. And he was heard in leaked audio published by The Verge this month, offering his opinion of another presidential candidate. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies. With the usually elusive and mostly silent Zuckerberg front and center this week, did we learn anything new? I mostly learned that Congress has gotten way better at asking questions um, to, to Mark Zuckerberg than the last time they did in the Senate hearing in April of 2018. Kate Klonick is assistant professor at St. John's Law School, where she's researching the creation of an oversight board at Facebook. She watched most of the proceedings on the Hill, and she also saw the Georgetown address where Zuckerberg articulated his views about Facebook and free speech. I had this moment of why is he explaining the First Amendment and American free speech values to this crowd of American college-age students until I realized that he was explaining it to the rest of the world. He was live streaming it on Facebook, and there were hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe tuning in. And so I think that that's kind of how you have to think about his attempts at explaining freedom of expression. Well, putting aside his claims to democratic nobility, there was also some revisionist history that had to be dealt with. I mean, this is a business that began with college students rating the relative hotness of other college students. Uh, but he seems to remember it as uh, something different, the epicenter of debate about the war in Iraq. And the toll on, on soldiers and their families and our national psyche was, was severe, yet most of us felt like we were powerless to do anything about it. And I remember feeling that if more people had a voice to share their experiences, then maybe it could have gone differently. Now, it wouldn't be surprising for someone to exaggerate the origin story, except the origin story of Facebook was a hit movie that millions and millions of people <laughs> have seen. We're ranking girls. You mean other students? Yeah. You think this is such a good idea? I need the algorithm. Right. I need the algorithm. The social network, where you know, which didn't have anything to do with the free market of ideas, 
what's he up to? Yeah, I mean, there was one moment in the hearing that uh, I thought was significant. I mean, it was just kind of silly banter from a congressman, but I said, did you ever think that you'd have started this like back in the day? And of course he didn't, because no one in their right mind imagined a world like this, or very few people did. It has completely rewritten how people communicate globally, how we form communities, how we speak, how we speak to our leaders, how we vote, how we shop, every aspect of our community, right? And so it's not crazy to me that he's kind of had this revisionist history of how it all started because he's trying to grapple with the realities of how large and how powerful the company that he's created is and how powerful it is as a tool. That said, that could have been like a personal journey for him. I don't understand the point of giving like a speech about it or deciding that you're going to wrap in the current events of the time. I mean, maybe that was something that was going on in the back of his head, but you're right. There have been multiple biographies and multiple movies and all of these things that involve this, and they didn't involve that part of the story. On the subject of reframing, his whole speech at Georgetown seemed to try to reframe his company's image from that of a cynical, highly profitable operation to the fullest expression of democratic nobility and bulwark against tyranny and evil. As Karol Swisher observed in The Times this week, he seems to be saying you can have Facebook or you can be China. Is that how you heard it? I didn't see it as kind of an ultimatum. Let's put it that way. But I did see him as telling people that this is part of the global struggle that is happening right now, which is that you have giant tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Google that are built out of American free speech norms that are built out of democratic ideals that have developed in that worldview for the last 15 years. And then you have China. That part of it is kind of accurate. But I do think that he was trying to kind of put the poles in the ground of where the debate could go. And I actually think it's really great because I think people lose sight of that. I think we kind of get acculturated in the U.S. to pushing back on these platforms. And we don't realize in the global south, in a lot of places, Facebook is the Internet. And Facebook has democratized a lot of speech and been a force Sometimes for good, sometimes for evil, but certainly changed people's access to knowledge and information. Understood. Although as long as we're talking about places where democracy is not as firmly entrenched as it is in North America, it doesn't take too much to imagine a situation in which a policy of not fact-checking political ads and giving them even more leeway than other kinds of speech could go very, very wrong. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Like Myanmar, deadly pogrom wrong, right? Oh, completely. Yep. And I think this is probably one of the scariest points of the last few weeks has been the release by Facebook of their community standards. There were two changes. One was not particularly huge. They just announced it publicly, which was that political figures were exempted from the community standards that bind the rest of us. So they could say things like hate speech on the platform and it would stay up. That was actually not a huge departure from what they'd previously been doing. We just didn't know about it. The second thing is the AOC thing, which is the idea that political figures can publish ads. And even if things are untrue in those ads, they will stay up. The caveat of that is that it has to be a quote from the political figure. So if AOC published an ad, it would have to be in quotes her saying something like, my opponent 
euthanizes puppy dogs, end quote. And that would stay up on the platform. So it's just these fine lines that do not make sense to people. They're not intuitive. One of the core issues, and I think this is one of the most dangerous things. You mentioned Myanmar. I think this is one of the most dangerous things because I don't think when Zuckerberg is announcing this type of policy and talking about freedom of expression, I don't think that he's understanding the way a platform like his completely weaponizes that kind of policy and that ability of political figures to lie to people and use this for evil. Now, Charlie Wurzel at the New York Times noticed something that's really weird about this whole conversation. And that is that Facebook makes something like $38 billion a year profit on sales of far more than $100 billion. And the political ad revenue that they get is relatively trivial. Why fight this fight? If in other areas of their business, they can be shown to be just sort of single-mindedly focused on growth and profit, this doesn't seem to be the business sector that's going to even fulfill that strategy. Zuckerberg's answer to that, and it's up to you whether you believe him or not, but I don't understand any other justification for it, is really this kind of, I would say, democratic virtue in which he really thinks that there have been so many democratic causes, so many candidates, so many issues and parties that have been helped by the ability to use and leverage Facebook as a means of cheap advertising. So there was a the representative from Guam, I thought, had a tremendous moment in which he said, the one thing that I want to thank you for is for continuing to run political ads because I could never have won my election because I could never have afforded the TV clips or the radio clips. And everyone in my constituency is on Facebook and uses Facebook every day. And I was able to, for very little money, reach a lot of constituents and fund my entire campaign. So there's part of it that Zuckerberg isn't wrong. His platform is really helpful to a lot of democratic causes. So how do we go about creating protections or regulations around recommendation systems? Yeah, so that's that's very tricky because we don't want to block free speech, of course, and that should be the absolute priority. But recommendations are not free speech. They are free. There's a freedom of Google to make money <laughs> uh, with ad, uh, anti-vaccine uh, content. So it's not a problem of free speech to regulate recommendations. It's a problem of free speech to regulate what can be put on the platforms. And that's why CDA 230 that regulates platforms right now is actually a really good positive legislation. But at the time when it was voted, recommendations didn't exist. AI didn't exist. So it, right. it was a very different well, Let's explain game. what CDA 230 is. So this is the Communications Decency Act of 1996, Six? I think. Yes. Yep. And Section 230. So when yep. someone says CDA 230, they just mean that. And this is specifically carving out uh, no responsibility. Platforms are not responsible for the content that appears on them. This is what allows the internet to grow. It seems like a great thing. But as you said, it was before the age of AI. It was before anyone had built recommendation right. systems. It was before there was YouTube because uh, 1996 is actually 10 years before before YouTube. And it's a completely different thing to be like, yep, platform you're not responsible for the user uploads 
than saying, platform, you're not responsible for taking something user uploads and promoting it or amplifying it. And this is where we come to that phrase of the freedom of speech is not the same thing as the freedom of reach. Imagine if we said, cool, like what's true for the New York Times and other media is just is true for, for YouTube. Anytime that you as a platform make the curatorial decision, whether it's with humans or with an algorithm to amplify content, it's at that point that you become liable. Yeah, exactly. So amplifying how many times do you become liable is a valid question. Like, yeah. But everybody would agree, like, if an algorithm amplifies something a billion times, it should be liable <laughs> at, some, be at some publisher. point. At, at some point, the number of times that the algorithm say that Obama was born in Kenya was in the hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. So, mm. so it's completely crazy. It's probably more than the population of the U.S. It's it's insane. At some point, if the algorithm is not liable, these things are going to happen. So the the idea is to to have accountability. Like at least, okay, we, we can have an AI like in charge of where we're going, but at least we should know where it's heading. So we should know, like, if when you, a content is recommended on YouTube, we should know which proportion of the view comes from the recommendation and which proportion of the view come just from human recommended to another. So there was this law passed in France that says exactly that. YouTube should say the proportion of each algorithm promoting uh, the content. for. So, so if you have a video that's got 100 million views, then you should be allowed uh, to be able to say what percentage of those views came from recommendations. So this exactly. would open up a bunch of transparency and accountability for YouTube. Exactly, which percentage of the view come from the search results, etc. So you would have more more visibility into into what's going on. And so if something go, goes wrong, like the, the pedophile case or the bad uh, child videos and stuff, you, you would see it much faster because you would see that the algorithm is starting to amplify like crazy some some specific type of videos. So you wouldn't need to wait until uh, the problem is too big. You could see it faster. Mm-hmm. Another problem, it seems, is just speed, because if you think about the most profitable business model for YouTube, it's to have all of this running on automation. So uh, you publish a video and it gets instantly available and recommended everywhere instantly as fast as possible with no human reviewers. That's the most efficient business model. Then you have no human beings in between guarding between what is being broadcasted and the sensitive people on the other end. And that includes children <laughs> on YouTube for kids. That includes in Syria, what people are believing about these sort of war zones where there's not much information coming out. So having a more sensitive, more protected way in which information gets controlled or shared or, you know, there's more thoughtfulness and not just an automated channel that's just trying to maximize profits. So this is why I think what you're doing in France is so critical and why we could replicate that in the U.S. or the EU. And why I think algo transparency is so interesting because it's essentially a citizen is having to create the satellite network um, right. to point it back to understand what's going on on Earth. Like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, so it, that's a perfect analogy. I mean, so Guillaume has this project called Algo Transparency, which basically shows uh, as much as it can, it scrapes YouTube and it shows these are the um, the things that are getting most recommended and it tracks it over time so we can start to see trends. But this is one human being, one very talented human being, a civilian <laughs> who's trying to create essentially a system of satellites to monitor what's happening at the scale of 2 billion people. This is just not the right way that accountability and, should work. And I know that when uh, YouTube will often f like fight back at you and be like, oh, but you don't have the latest data. And that's sort of your point. You're like, correct. Exactly. Yes, exactly. you do. <laughs> and they're trying to hide it. 
It's not just the 2020 Democratic candidates who are upset about these tech companies and their growing power. There are actually a bunch of separate antitrust investigations going on. Cecilia Kong is a tech reporter at The New York Times, and she came in to help us untangle them. So on the antitrust front, there are so many investigations going on right now of Facebook and of Google. There is there is an investigation at the DOJ of Google. There is an investigation among almost all, actually 50 states' attorneys generals um, of Google. And at the FTC, there is an investigation of Facebook. At the DOJ, there's an investigation wow. of Facebook. And at the states' attorneys generals are also investigating Facebook. They're all looking at whether the companies are abusing their monopoly power, and if, and in the case of the FTC, if the mergers that Facebook has had in the past of what's with um, acquiring WhatsApp and Instagram were acquired in a way that have now shown evidence of being anti-competitive, those are going to take some time to actually play out. Really, I think there's a lot of attention to that, but I don't think you should expect any action in the next mm. year. Um, those are kind of coordinated. Um, the state's attorney generals have come on in to see the FTC and DOJ officials. On the regulatory front, which is a little bit different, you're seeing privacy regulation already at play in the state of California and other states like Washington State. And you're seeing nothing, frankly, happen on the federal level when it comes to privacy regulation. And that's another way to really oversee and to try to to try to um, contain the power right now of these companies. Um, on the federal level, it's just nothing's moving in Congress. So you're not seeing any legislation. But you will see California enact its own law starting Janu- January 2020. And you may see some behavior change by these companies. At least they'll be What's the new ways. law in California? Yeah, it's a California um, Consumer Privacy Protection Act, CC. PPA. And it is a law that will do a few things. It looks a little bit like the European laws, which are the only real global standard right now, but it does some things even further. It allows you as a consumer to tell a company, I want to know all of my data that you've collected. I want to know everything that you've collected about me, and I want to delete that data. It has some laws on age requirements for Facebook, Google, and other tech companies having to ask consumers for permission to collect their data. They actually raise that, that, that age to 16 as opposed to 12, which is the federal law. So it's stricter in many ways. And that will go into effect in January 2020. And in the, at that point, what happens is it's not like that's only going to pertain to California companies. It's going to basically blanket the rest of the nation and all American um, users of the internet will essentially be protected by this kind of a law. Because it will be too hard for Facebook or these other companies to say, we're just going to segment out California. That's right. And not have the rest of the country. That's have right. To do this. Yeah. And there's a really interesting movement right now on the federal level for these companies to lobby for a privacy law on the federal level that stops any states from being able to enact their laws. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is a, you know, one of the cases where that's the advantage is that that's the only way they want, reason why they want regulation because they want something that's a little bit weaker and that would stop California. If Elizabeth Warren were to to win the nomination, win the presidency, she has said in the campaign, obviously, that she wants to break up big tech. What kind of power would she have as president to do something like that? Well, she gets to pick the AG. (laughs) She gets to pick the attorney general at the DOJ. She gets to put folks into the regulatory agencies that are of... um, um, that oversee these issues of the FTC and the DOJ. She has enormous influence over this because she will set the agenda. Right now in the Trump administration, Republican administration, there is already interest in, 
in um, antitrust and big tech. So this is not just a democratic thing. Mm-hmm. Right now, as we said, the the leaders of the DOJ and the FTC are Republicans appointed by President Trump, and they are also pursuing their own investigations. I think you'll see under a Warren administration, if she were elected, a, a more concerted and a more aggressive push to break up the companies. And she's been very specific with all big, all four big tech companies, why they need to be broken up and how they need to be broken up and how each company is different. So she's deep in it. She's deep in the weeds on each of these companies and why she thinks that and how she thinks they should be broken up. What do the folks in leadership in these tech companies believe is going to happen? I mean, how realistic do they are they taking these pushes either the, yeah. to break them up or to see some sort of regulation one way or the other? I can speak to Facebook mm-hmm. because there was a, a really intriguing audio recording that was leaked by The Verge. He was asked about Senator Warren and if she were elected, how would he, you know, what would he do? And he said, um, you know, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. He's absolutely determined to make it as difficult as possible for any law enforcement agency to break up his company. He's merging the data between the three biggest apps, which is Facebook itself, WhatsApp, and Instagram. So he's scrambling the egg, if you will, as much as possible so that it's very difficult to unscramble and make into three eggs again. Look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the map and you fight. We are seeing action that shows how scared he is. And this goes with every company. They're totally terrified. Government officials are dealing with a lot. What do they and their staff members need from us to be able to understand these issues better? Tristan and I have some ideas. What I find interesting about those hearings when Mark Zuckerberg went in front of Congress is they were five hours or something long. I mean, there there was multiple sessions, hours and hours and hours of questions. But what does popular culture remember about those hearings? Senator, yes, there will always be a version of Facebook that is free. It is our mission to try to help connect everyone around the world and to bring the world closer together. In order to do that, we believe that we need to offer a service that everyone can afford, and we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. That's great. And what do people take away from that one memory is that Congress doesn't get it. And we would never, therefore, trust them to regulate these companies. And I think the point that Yale is making is that it's not about the five hours of testimony. In the attention economy, it's a race to figure out what can I get people to remember and hold on to. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I was Facebook, I don't think they did this, but I would have wanted that question to happen because it forced people to have just one memory leaving it, which is that we shouldn't trust government to regulate. And I think we have to examine that question because the fundamental thing here, you know, with our guiding philosophy at CHD is we have paleolithic emotions, which are on a fixed clock rate. Our evolutionary instincts aren't changing. We have medieval institutions that get updates about every four years with some new, new people in it. Uh, and then we have godlike technology that's increasing at an accelerating rate. So just imagine a world where the clock rates of your car are getting exponentially faster while, while your steering wheel is still 
lagging behind every four years. Like that doesn't work. You're going to go off the cliff by default. Mm -hmm. And so that's the issue is we have to align these clock rates so that our paleolithic instincts match up with upgrading, you know, the, the frequency and wisdom of our medieval institutions upgrading with, you know, the, the slowing down probably of our godlike technology. Yeah. Because we don't want self-destructive godlike technology. It is intrinsically self-terminating if we cannot align the clock rates of the guiding and control mechanism with the speed and evolution of tech. And I think that's why we have to refute this idea that the government can't regulate it. We need yeah. government to regulate it. And what was powerful for me about that point that y'all made is, you know, I've caught myself thinking that set of thoughts about like, ah, I don't really think government has what it takes to understand uh, technology, especially is getting more and more complicated. So if they don't understand it, then I don't really think that, uh, that I'd want them to, to regulate it because they're gonna, they're gonna mess things up. Um, and that I want to change my own internal memetics to being, ah, it's then my job as a technologist to help upgrade the capacity of Congress, of, of our uh, legislative system, whether it's by writing articles or explanations or getting to know people, whatever it is, like I should be asking the question, cool, how can I help? Right. The, the reason that people have so little faith is because they are dealing with more complexity, more problems at tighter and tighter timescales. It is, it is understandable and with more political misincentives and, and the whole thing and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we want to add is a coprocessor. That's like something like an office of technology assessment would, would add like a, a moral coprocessor that can do faster updating on, you know, here are the issues with technology and let's actually farm that out to some expertise so that we can get some better ideas and policies at a faster rate. And we used to have an office of technology assessment and we can bring that back. And, you know, the, the whole point is, at an age of exponential tech where it's only the issues are only get crazier and more complex, we need to add some speed and wisdom to the oversight power of government one way or another. And there are a few components that go into building that coprocessor. One is help from people on the inside of tech companies, and another is from people on the outside who work with government to get them up to speed. Then there's the question of form. How can we better match the clock rate of government with the clock rate of technology? How do we as technologists expand our government's capacity? Okay, fiduciary responsibility or a fiduciary relationship, it's an old concept and honestly one that I didn't know before diving into this work. It's a way the law in the U.S. makes sense of relationships where one party has asymmetric power over another. I asked Tristan to explain. There's constitutional law, which defines a relationship between individuals and government, there's legislative law or contractual law, which defines the right relationship between individuals and each other in society. And then there's fiduciary law, which is between, you know, doctors and patients and therapists and clients that has to do with uh, essentially protecting the asymmetry of power. I mean, just imagine a world where every single doctor, if you live in the United States, every doctor's business model was to not give you the drugs that would help you the most, but just give you the drugs they would make the most money from. Mm. Imagine that world. Like, mm. oh my God, that would be horrific. It'd be this sort of dystopia of, of hell. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, kind of a hell of healthcare. I mean, um, or lawyers where every single lawyer was like, oh, now you told me all that information. Now I'm going to go sell it to the other lawyers and I'm going to go manipulate you and go trade on Wall Street using all the financial details that I found about you. For in order for services to be rendered in this context, like a priest or a lawyer, they have to collect information from the client that could be used to compromise the integrity of that client. 
And the, the degree of that compromising information is the degree to which it must not be an equal contract relationship. And the big deception in Silicon Valley is that they are in a equal parties relationship. We're just giving you what you want. You clicked play. You did this thing. You scrolled. You know, you are an equal party in this relationship when you're, but that's missing. You know, in the first case, the fact that there's a thousand engineers on the other side of the screen with a huge amount of asymmetry of power, knowing what will persuade you to keep scrolling. Or in the case of AI, an increasing level of predictive capacity. So that asymmetry is growing because they can predict even more invisible features about you that you don't know about yourself. Yeah. We say it's like Silicon Valley designs its products with behavioral economics, which mm-hmm. is to say with the economics of manipulation, changing choice architectures, using that asymmetry. And they defend themselves to Congress and governments using regular neoliberal economics, that humans are are free, rational choosers, agents of their own design, making their own choices throughout the world. So they're pretending that they're in this equal contract relationship while actually being in an asymmetric relationship. Now, when I say that, I don't want people to think that, you know, we think this is like there's this diabolical manipulation happening. I think they actually kind of we have all collectively in Silicon Valley slow walked ourselves into this position of asymmetry without really realizing it. But now that we're here, there's a defense going on where the last thing they would want is to be recognized for having this asymmetric uh, duty of care relationship where they have to have a fiduciary duty of care, caring relationship with the people that they're serving because they have such asymmetric power over the other's weaknesses. As a government you know, person and as a policymaker, you know, you want to be thinking about with this asymmetry of power, like imagine a world where priests are getting exponentially smarter, like every passing minute <laughs> and yeah. like the level of information they're doing. And so you're trying to protect not just against today's level of asymmetry of what a priest knows about everyone in their town, but like the exponentiation of that asymmetry. So it's very simple. We have to go from a contract relationship, which has been false all along. We've been sold a bill of goods. That's not true to a fiduciary relationship. Let's even just call that a caring relationship that puts your interests first. And there's a, st- a professional standard uh, and responsibility that your license or your your ability or capacity to provide that service gets taken away. You know, you have to have a responsibility to the community that you are inside of and serving. And what's wrong with the technology uh, companies right now in the business model is it has none of that responsibility. And YouTube is still recommending conspiracy theories and crazy stuff and it, it hasn't fundamentally changed. And so that's why we just need to just bite the bullet here and switch to a fiduciary model. And that's the biggest, most powerful action that government can help make possible. And this is actually being discussed right now in the UK with something called the duty of care. Um, but that's a little bit lighter and more ambiguous. I think we need something stronger. But this is the kind of conversation that we really need to have is what are these companies and these products in service to? And it's like what yeah. you talk about, Asa, like what is this technology for? Is it for maximally manipulating the limits of the human nervous system with increasing asymmetry and asymmetric power over the limits of our nervous system? Or is it for being in service of strengthening uh, our social fabric and strengthening our communities and strengthening the family and strengthening democracy? Um, you know, we, we have to make this choice. And making this choice also means backing it up with resources and regulations. Let's make sure we're at least making visible where the platform's business models are at odds with democratic values and our best interests. The point is, this is a systemic problem. As long as it isn't illegal or there aren't major fiscal repercussions, companies will always be incentivized to trade what is right for what is effective. And their millions of A-B tests will automatically 
and silently find all of our weak spots and choose against our values in favor of engagement. The goal of policy is to find ways of making the externalities expensive without legislating product decisions. We've just heard clips today, starting with the takeaway explaining the breakup between the Democratic Party and big tech. Backtalk described how the libertarian tendencies of Silicon Valley helped them realize they'd be better off cozying up with Republicans. On the media discussed Mark Zuckerberg and his misguided self-image as an advocate for free speech. Your undivided attention explained the problem with the outdated policy, stating that platforms have no responsibility for what is posted on them. The Takeaway talked with Cecilia King about the range of regulations and interest in antitrust regulation that's all coming down the pike. And finally, we just heard one more from Your Undivided Attention discussing the fallacy that Congress is incapable of regulating technology and argued that it is, in fact, imperative that they get to the point where they can do just that. Members are going to be hearing more of my thoughts about the intersection of big tech and libertarianism that well runs very deep all the way from strategies at the company level to squash unions all the way up to that ideology uh, being at the core of cutting science funding at the federal government level, which has historically been a key engine for innovation, something that Silicon Valley uh, says they're interested in, but it turns out maybe not so much. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Heather, previously from Texas, now in Colorado, I'm calling about your episode on decolonization. Another point I kind of wanted to talk about... Um, my husband and I were actually talking about it recently, about how one of the last few acceptable forms of colonization, of course, there's still colonization of many times, but this is one of the few that is considered, like, laudable. People kind of congratulate everyone and themselves about this, is, like, Christian missionarism, where these young people, especially, like, teen, uh, teenagers, high schoolers, college students, go on these trips to other countries, usually third-world countries, and essentially kind of take a little vacation and do missionary work and we were just talking about kind of the the implications that can have on an area especially an area with already existing religious strife and to these teenagers of course i absolutely don't blame the teenagers i, I kind of blame more the organizations that put these types of events on but they see it as, as doing good work, and to maybe some extent they are, but whenever they leave, what they've left behind can have real implications for the people that listen to that message. Say someone did start to question their beliefs and became confused, but it's not acceptable wherever they're from to be Christian, and now they have to deal with that in their lives. Anyway, there, there's a lot more 
to kind of dig into that, but I, I don't want to spend forever talking about it. But other than just, you know, corporations and the Internet with, with colonization, I, I feel like this religious colonization is still very much prevalent in today's world and um, something that I really, I think we should start pushing towards ending because I just, I don't see that it has good benefits. Um, of course, the people who share those beliefs, they see it as sharing the good word, but um, it can also be a form of cultural stripping because, you know, we have whole cultures and civilizations now that um, are almost completely diminished in their history because of religious colonization. So, anyways, those are just some of my thoughts. Uh, thank you so much for all that you do. I'll keep listening. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Mark in Colorado. I couldn't help but call for the first time after listening to the episode 1321 on decolonization. Uh, when we got towards the end, the very last clip that you played, I just not cried, but I was tearing up thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, we there's so much we don't know. And thanks to Jay, we're getting to hear this. I absolutely love you. You are an awesome, awesome person. Uh, this entire episode, uh, the ending when you started talking about being a curator versus an aggregator, uh, and um, previous episodes, one especially where you were talking about being overwhelmed. Uh, I look at all of this stuff and I am so grateful that even though I feel overwhelmed, I can sit down, listen to an episode that uh, of Best of the Left and realize that all this information needs to be taken in. We need to know everything that's going on in order to move forward. And I uh, have donated to your climate ride. I wanted to sign up and be your helper when you were asking for such help, but I just don't have the time. Uh, I, ever since that overwhelmed episode where or you started an episode talking about being overwhelmed, I think that's planned and intentional on the part of the right wing to keep us all overwhelmed so that we don't try to fight back because we don't have time. And then all your episodes uh, recently on depression, the last two callers today on the 1321 episode, it's making me think I, I need to do some research into that. I, I might actually have been depressed my entire life and I just don't know it and I have a book I was going to read and now I definitely will get into that but I'll wrap this up by saying stay awesome I hear people say that to you all the time and it's not something I would typically say but it's very fitting and keep in mind you are a curator you're not an aggregator and you are very much loved by so many people out here Keep up the work because we need you. Oh, and I do go to your affiliate link when I have to, probably more than I should. I've been using it for years. I never go there without using your link. And I will call back to talk more about the depression once I do my own research. Stay awesome, Jay. Jay, sorry, this is Mark in Colorado again. I just had to add this one addendum. I know I just hung up. 
but I just wanted to make certain that you knew that I am now going to sign up for a monthly contribution. I haven't been doing it. I've donated here and there little bits, uh, but now I will become a regular contributor because I surely don't want to see you disappear. Thank you. Hi, Jay. It's Stacy from the Bay Area. I just uh, became a an actual member of your podcast, and, and it's the first time ever. I have donated, you know, on very rare occasion, just a, a, an individual donation, like a one-off thing. But I have to tell you, son, that your last call that I heard, I mean, I, I'm always behind, but the last call that I heard was you talking about seasonal affective disorder. You didn't say those words, but that's exactly what you were talking about. And I didn't know, boy, that you deal with this and you continue making this excellent podcast how do you do it in the midst of stuff like that? I cannot comprehend, but you do it, and you're amazing for it, and thank you. And so, I hope that other people listening to this will uh, step up and donate as well. You moved me, boy! And I hope that you move other people as well, son. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And thanks again to all of the very kind uh, people who've been calling in and, and being very supportive of the, of the show. In response, though, I, I have a little bit more to say about the difference between aggregation and curation. I've just had more ideas on it, especially when producing this show about Facebook, because Facebook really sort of sticks in your face. The difference between an aggregator and a curator, or, or maybe Facebook would claim to curate, but algorithmically rather than humanely, and you see what we end up with. So, uh, I, you know, that, that just brings all that, uh, sharply into focus, I think. And then additionally, I was reminded of something that I took comfort in. I mean, maybe back in the days when I was doing shows on uh, job automation and, and, you know, the future of work, and I read Yuval Noah Harari. I like, you know, he's a massive worldwide uh, bestseller. He's done at least three major books. Uh, his, his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, is his third book. But I've read all three, and if you were only going to read one, I, I would probably recommend that one and then go back to Sapiens and Homo Deus in that order, probably. 
Um, but in, in the book about 21 lessons for the 21st century, he addresses job automation. And to be honest, this was something I had had concerns about for myself. I thought like, you know, I, I described my perception of my own job as that of an aggregator for the first several years that I did it. And I thought, man, you know, how many years is it going to be before computers can do this as well as I can? I should be really worried about this. And then specifically, Yuval Noah Harari talks about curation, human curation, as one of the most secure jobs for the future, one of the jobs that simply cannot be automated away. And, and, and of course, by this time, you know, years, years since I had realized that I myself was a curator rather than an aggregator. I, I got a lot of comfort from that. So I was glad that it wasn't just me who thought, oh, there's some value in this. It turns out curation in general as, uh, you know, as a career, regardless of your field of curation, is actually a very secure job. And sort of on this note, like a friend warned me pretty recently about the, the obsolescence of what I do, sort of the, you know, warned like, oh, you know, you don't know how long this is going to last. You may have to figure out ways to bring more value to the show than just pulling clips together because his, you know, the, the implication was because that's really easy, you know, that that could be done automatically because just like I had, just like, you know, the a listener had who, who had brought this topic up, this friend of mine confused aggregation with curation and uh, and turns out it makes all the difference in the world however it only makes a difference when people really believe in it you have to actually see the value and understand it and believe in it and then take actions that that uh, you know sync up with those beliefs it's, it's a bit like tinkerbell right uh, so when people don't understand the difference uh you know like i didn't it's easy to think that a free aggregator or an algorithmic curator can provide just as much value as a human curator. But I think it's clear that's not the case, you know, between my explanations and what all the kind callers have, uh, have been saying in their messages. I think you, you get the idea. You, you understand the argument. I'm guessing you probably agree at, at this point. So now we just get back to the discussion of why we need your financial support at this particular time in the history of the show. So the company that brings in, just to reiterate, I've probably heard it before, but the company that brings in the lion's share of advertisers for the show is going the way of Facebook, honestly. They want to track listeners around the internet using third-party pixels. By the way, you know, if you're not familiar, this is what Facebook uses. Facebook doesn't just track you when you're on Facebook. They track you when you are other places too, using a tiny little pixel that's embedded in most websites. And so it's as if you're on Facebook because Facebook knows you're there. It's very creepy. So they track you around the internet so they can advertise to you. And, and so the advertising companies that deal with podcasts want to do the same thing. They want to track listeners around the internet, know all of your habits so that they can better target you. This is more profitable for advertisers. It is not necessarily more profitable at all for publishers like me, 
Of course, it's a huge invasion of your privacy, and it results in an end product of a show that is lower quality and more annoying to listen to. Dave from Olympia called in and gave us his perspective on that, because some of the shows he listens to have already started doing this. Maybe the same for you, too. So for all of these reasons, I'm not going to be going along with this plan, but it does mean that I'm going to be losing a huge source of revenue at the beginning of the new year. So back in October, I announced that we needed to reach a total of a thousand patrons pledging on Patreon, averaging six bucks a month to make up for this lost revenue. You know, of course, we weren't starting at zero. We were basically starting at about 50% of the way to our goal. Now we're about 65% of the way to our goal. And But we're getting towards crunch time, you know. Um, the new plan, as I said, doesn't kick in until January. So in October, when I started talking about it, we weren't in financial danger. But people started signing up. Same with November. We weren't in financial danger, and I made that clear. But a few more people were signing up. So in the last six weeks, we've gained 150 new pledges or so. And now in this month, in this time of giving to worthy causes, with the clock ticking down, to January, we need about 350 additional listeners to step up and pledge, even if it's only two bucks a month, to keep the show on stable financial ground. So I'm convinced that by now you agree with the arguments we're making about the value of the show and can see the dangers of demanding everything on the internet be free and supported by advertisers. So now it's only a question of whether you have the ability and willingness to support us directly so that the show can always remain free for everyone, uh, as it always will, not to mention free of the influences of advertising companies who want to harvest all your private habits for their own financial gain. So if you sign up now, you won't even be charged for the first time until the 1st of January, but you can set it up now and not have to think about it again. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft to get started. Thanks in advance. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives now more than ever. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now for everyone's favorite, today's news by Limerick, and today's is a doozy. The story goes like this. The share of Republicans who say presidents could operate more effectively if they did not have to worry so much about Congress and the courts increased 16 percentage points in just the last year. So of just Republicans, it went from 27% of Republicans in March 2018 to 43% this past July. Which brings up an interesting point, which is a little pet peeve of mine, which is that conservatives in America love to claim, 
ownership of our founding origin story. Conservatives today, because they believe they have wrestled the entire concept of freedom away from the left, also think we were the revolutionaries. We fought the British and won our freedom because that makes sense in their own personal story. A clearer understanding of history would tell you that it was the conservatives, the royalists, the monarchists who were opposed to the revolution. And of course, modern day conservatives map much better onto the old royalists of the day. It was the progressives, it was the rabble rousers who were in favor of the revolution. Which, and here's just a bonus fact for you, I only learned recently the origin of the concept of left-wing and right-wing politics. That's obviously a metaphor. There's nothing left-handed or right-handed about politics or anything like that. So where does that come from? I learned recently that it stems back to the French Revolution, 1789, members of the French National Assembly met drafting a constitution, and the delegates were deeply divided over the issue of how much authority King Louis XVI should have. And as the debate raged, the two main factions each staked out territory in the assembly hall. The anti-royalist revolutionaries seated themselves to the presiding officer's left, while the more conservative, aristocratic supporters of the monarchy gathered to the right. And that is literally why we still use the terms right-wing and left-wing politics which helps make it perfectly clear to understand why conservatives have a monarchist tendency, let's say. Why, sure, maybe it's only 43%, but 43% of Republicans in an era when they have a president who is certainly shirking democratic norms makes them think, yes, this is the right way to go. We should have more authoritarian-style leadership. In response to all of this, at Liberix writes... When GOP cultists tell stories of good old American glories, don't fall for their tricks. In 76, they would have been George-loving Tories. <laughs> <laughs>